Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. So, yes, as the health minister confirmed today, Wednesday will be the day when the first vaccines will be distributed, will be administered here in Alberta. Obviously, acute care staff and the front lines are being given priority. I was an interesting piece here from Global's Nicole Stilger. She had an opportunity to speak with one of the nurses who has that appointment booked and will be one of the first here in Alberta. Uh, More here in uh, this clip. It is like a light at the end of the tunnel, something to look forward to. Edmonton critical care nurse Lisa Valley is getting her COVID-19 vaccine on Friday. It wasn't real until that moment that I was actually picking an appointment time. Uh, I was so excited. That happened just a couple of days ago. There's definitely a part of me that feels a little guilty that I get to be one of the first of only a few thousand. The Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine was approved for use in Canada last week. Health Minister Tyler Shandro says vaccinations in Alberta will start Wednesday. The first 3,900 doses will go to ICU doctors and nurses, respiratory therapists, and long-term care workers throughout the province. Shandro says Alberta Health Services has the facilities and equipment to meet the ultra-cold storage requirements for the vaccine, which requires two doses about a month apart to be effective. It's been a long nine months working in healthcare, especially pretty much since the beginning. I've worked directly with COVID patients, and there's just that always that underlying anxiety that I'm going to bring it home. Valley says it hurts to see some people not taking the pandemic seriously. When you have to go into work every day and you see, you know, not only the patient suffering, how families suffer and everybody involved, how many hours healthcare workers have put in at the bedside, how they're risking their own lives and their families' lives to be there. It will still be many months until the majority of Albertans are immunized, but Valley says seeing the process start gives her some comfort. It's a relief and I will happily take this vaccine if it's a step forward to, you know, some sort of normal life again. Nicole Stilger, Global News. The healthcare workers will get the vaccine on Wednesday here in Alberta. Over 25,000 individuals uh, will be vaccinated probably by the end of December, it's looking like. So certainly some encouraging news on that front that we heard from the health minister today. We still got a ways to go. And we're facing some challenging weeks and months here as uh, we are seeing this this virus surge, not just here in Alberta, elsewhere in Canada and and much of the Western world. In fact, the U.S. and and Europe uh, all dealing with uh, surges, too. So it's it's a tough position we're in. We can see that light at the end of the tunnel. We can see what the end of this looks like. But we got a ways to go and some tough months ahead before we get there. But joining us uh, for some further thoughts on just what a remarkable achievement it is uh, that we're at that point and uh, how we navigate uh, these uh, coming weeks and months here. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Dr. James Kellner, who is a, a pediatrician, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at the uh, coming School of Medicine, University of Calgary. Dr. Kellner, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Uh, good afternoon. Hope all is well with you. 
I appreciate that. Let's uh, let's get your thoughts first of all. Just you know how remarkable this is that here we are still in calendar 2020 and we're at a point where vaccines have been developed, approved, or being administered. It's it's quite an achievement, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I don't think, you know, in the fullness of time um, that uh, I hope in the fullness of time people have a chance to appreciate the near miraculousness of this um, when you think uh, back to how the year's gone and it was only, you know, it started with getting the genetic sequence of the virus, which was uh, um, um, made public to the world at the beginning of January, and everything has led from that in terms of vaccine development, diagnostic testing, and uh, it's been quite something, all the work that usually goes into developing a vaccine. It hasn't been rushed, and it hasn't been done sloppily. It's been done very carefully, but but very quickly, much more quickly than usual. And and, and the two vaccines closest to use, the Pfizer vaccine that we're, we have now in Calgary, doses in Calgary, and uh, and the um, and the uh, Moderna vaccine, it's really quite amazing that they're that they're being used now and being given to people. It's uh, um, it's not an automatic thing. There's going to be a lot of the other vaccines that people are trying to develop that um, that won't make it this far. And so I think just appreciating the achievement is it's it's worth uh, thinking about for a minute. It was interesting because the mRNA approach that both Pfizer and Moderna took, yes. you know, there, there was some risk involved. We weren't sure yes. how well this approach would work. It's yeah. kind of a, a unique approach. But just the fact that it seems to have worked out this well, I mean, obviously it's great news, but, but does it also bode well for future vaccines, maybe targeting different viruses and diseases? Yeah, it absolutely does, you know. And so the way that vaccines are being developed, vaccine development in, has been inherently a very conservative thing over the last century, really, um, with uh, vaccine uh, scientists and developers sticking with sort of tried and true methods that, um, while laborious at times in terms of making the vaccine, um, are known to be, I'm sorry for that, are known to be, um, <laughs> are known to be safe. Uh, and um, so that there's been um, some innovation in terms of new ways of doing things, but it's been very, very sort of careful in coming. And uh, the uh, mRNA technology is not a brand new technology. It's, you know, it's, there's been 20 years of development of this. Mm-hmm. And so for delivering other things like drugs and um, other um, therapeutic agents. And so um, there's been a long time to sort of work it out. And this is the first time with um, vaccines in humans. And uh, that's um, always a new thing. Thing and the thing you will worry about how well it's going to work out and how safe it's going to be. But it's not that this was done without a lot of already accomplished background kind of testing to look at making it work. But yeah, this is something where you think like uh, going forward, uh, new vaccines, uh, new pandemic vaccines, new uh, um, all those things, you can anticipate it may be possible to do much more rapidly than we've been used to in the past. So I'm understanding of it is, and there, there's there's an elegance, there's a simplicity in a way to this, that um, the the spike protein that the virus has yep. and, and the way in which it attaches to our cells, yep. this, M, this RNA message is, is kind of, we're essentially downloading the instructions to create just that one little spike protein so that yes. the immune system recognizes it, knows how to deal with it. So if we do encounter the virus at some point, we, we have that immune response ready. I mean, is that basically yeah, the, that's the basically, it's, it's like it's the piece of the factory to build that one protein. And just and it's it's more than that. It's that piece of the factory to build that one protein, but then the factory part of it goes away after that one protein is introduced into the cells. And then the way that the mRNA is delivered to our body, it's given as a an intramuscular shot, as most vaccines are. Your flu shot is delivered the same way. 
and then um, the the mRNA is is coated in some uh, lipids, some fat molecules um, that can make their way through the um, uh, the body's tissues in the bloodstream and make it to where there's cells of the immune system that will recognize this, and then the the lipid coating goes away and exposes the RNA, and then it it's like it does its little factory job to create the spike protein that is then recognized by the immune system, and then it goes away. It doesn't it doesn't stick around, and so um, that's part of the beauty of the reason to think that this should be a very safe um, and um, straightforward way of doing things. Let me ask you about uh, children as well, and that's certainly your area of expertise too. So um, there, there were no children, as I understand, in, in any of the Pfizer trials. I do understand Moderna does have some trials involving children. I mean, is, is that typical when it comes to big phase three sort of vaccine trials? How, how do we address that question? Well, because kids do need to be vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. In fact, in recent decades, it's usually the complete opposite when a new vaccine, because the vast majority of vaccines that have been developed for use in humans have been developed for use in children first. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when you think of all the new vaccines that have been out there in the last um, um, a number of, uh, of, of decades, um, um, uh, meningitis vaccines, various kinds of that, pneumonia vaccines, um, HPV vaccine, all those were developed for use in children first, and then only after that extrapolated into adults. So it's kind of the other way around, as usual. Um, the the reason children weren't focused on at the beginning was because um, at, the, at the beginning of this, there was a sense that children weren't getting severity ill very often, which is still the case. Um, the role of children in transmission is, is important, but they weren't looking at that piece of it. And the other group that wasn't included was pregnant women. Um, and so... Now that the vaccine has been shown to be um, safe, and we'll get the you know really big scale safety pretty soon here, and there's big efforts to try to measure that safety, um, and then the the benefit of it, the 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 test, the studies to look at using the vaccine in children and in pregnant women will be a little bit quicker and a little bit more straightforward. You won't get a huge. 45,000 person clinical trial to be a smaller trial where you just do the phase one trials to make sure that the vaccines are safe. And then they'll have to do phase one, two to make sure they get the right dose. Because one big difference between um, doses of vaccines for children and adults is that sometimes the dose is bigger in children and sometimes the dose is bigger in adults. And then sometimes the dose is exactly the same in both. And that'll be a thing that'll be important. But if you can show that children and then pregnant women as well react to the vaccine and make the same kind of immune response as an adult does, then then the step of making use of the vaccine in children won't have to wait for a large-scale clinical trial. It'll be relatively small trials that can be done to show that. Those are so-called bridging studies. Yeah, and it's important, the point about pregnant women. I think maybe people are reading something into this, that, that there was some concern that arose somewhere. No. It's just that pregnant women weren't in these trials. Right? Yeah, and and, and I can, if, you, if, if you have a minute, I can just quickly explain why that was yeah. the case. You know, part of the thing of making the vaccine um, be developed so fast is you had to uh, do everything very safely and, and very carefully um, a lot more quickly. One thing, when you study any new medication or vaccine in pregnant women, you can study the short-term safety of it after you give the vaccine, like for 30 to 60 days, like they did with these vaccines. But then you also have to wait till the pregnancy is finished and the baby's born to make sure everything's okay with the babies. Um, part of the reason, I think, for excluding women from the phase one and two trials and then the phase three trials 
uh, pregnant women was the um, the extra time that would have added to the whole process if you had to wait for all the pregnant women who took place to have their babies then and uh, uh, and make sure everything was okay as you expect it to be. That would have added literally months to the development and, uh, and in a process where from start to finish, it was less than a year. Adding those number of months would have set things back. And so it's not, a re- it's not that pregnant women aren't important to evaluate, and uh, it's um, not that it wasn't considered, but I think it's related to, you know, doing the best to get the vaccine up for the largest number of people in the, in, in the shortest period of time. So those days will come, but it's not that there's a particular concern. There's no, no nefarious thing in the background thinking that this is a dangerous vaccine for women. Well, and that's good. Yeah. And it, 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 I mean, it does raise a different question as we move forward and, and more vaccines are approved, which we should give priority to. Yes. I mean, cost will be a factor. Logistics will be a, a factor. Yes. Trial results, right? What the evidence tells us are going to be a factor because there's, I think, 15 still in phase three trials. There's the RNA base. There's uh, viral vector vaccines, protein subunit vaccines. Yes. So there's a lot of different candidates out there. Did you ever think you were going to become a vaccine expert and a, and a medical <laughs> yeah, expert? <laughs> so it's amazing how these things roll off our tongues, eh? Yeah. And you haven't seen. So yes, for sure. And and in fact, you know, there's over 200 vaccines under development worldwide. Like you know, there's a, a WHO report on this monthly, and there's about 215 now under development. And there's actually in some sort of clinical um, study, there's almost 50 around the world that are in phase one, two, or three trials. And you know, they're not all going to make it. You may have heard the story last week that there's an Australian vaccine um, that was uh, moving along uh, really well and it had to be pulled um, at a stage of development after the phase one two studies because it was found that um, it's causing false positive HIV tests and people were taking the vaccine and so Things that are sort of unanticipated are going to happen, and, and not mm-hmm. all. It's, it's all the more reason to uh, to sort of rejoice in the success of the uh, the mRNA vaccine so far, because there will be good ideas and, and good and, uh, um, early results that are going to lead to vaccines that just don't make it this far. And um, and so, um, but there will be more for sure. I, I don't know how many more there'll be for sure. The Canadian government has bought hundreds and millions of doses of up to seven vaccines, and we'll see how many of those actually make it to market. We will indeed. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Dr. Kellner, appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thanks very much, Rob. Bye. All right, take care. Uh, That is uh, Dr. Jim Kellner, the University of Calgary, uh, coming School of Medicine, pediatric infectious disease specialist. So his thoughts on how far we've come. And, uh, you know, there's a lot still to come as well in terms of other vaccines uh, getting to that final approval stage. And then, of course, um, the process of of vaccinating large numbers of, of Canadians and in other countries, too. But I want to take a look in on uh, the presidential race, which uh, the votes were actually cast, of course, more than a month ago. It was pretty clear in the days after that challenger Joe Biden had defeated the incumbent Donald Trump. But of course, um, there's been a real resistance from the defeated president and recognizing his defeat. And unfortunately, a lot of his supporters as well have kind of bought into this narrative, which is maybe more about undermining the new president's legitimacy than anything else. Maybe it's a lot about Trump's own ego. But since the day the votes were cast, it feels like Joe Biden has won this election several times over. And we have the certification of the votes just recently. We've had a number of these legal challenges from the president and his allies tossed out. And today, of course, the formality of the electoral college votes being cast. Joining us to talk more about where things stand and what's transpired in the last few weeks. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Tim Miller. He's a writer at large for The Bulwark and a political director with Republican voters against Trump. Tim, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. 
Hey, Rob. A, uh, some Canadian understatements there on how the president <laughs> is reacting to his defeat. I suppose so. Look, it's funny because I don't think it's a surprise. Trump never... You know, he, he doesn't acknowledge defeat. It's it's just not in him. So maybe that side of it shouldn't be a surprise. But what have you made of just how far he's taken these arguments and how many other people have bought into this? Yeah, um, I, I think that it's fair to say that, there, that it's surprising. And even if it's not surprising, it certainly is shocking um, how how many of the Republican leaders have gone on board, have gone along with his antics. Um to have 126 members of the House of Representatives um, sign on to a now defeated Supreme Court brief that was that was going to call for uh, denying every mail-in vote in four states that went for Joe Biden. I mean, this is not just getting rid of looking for fraud or you know things of this nature. They they wanted to cancel the legally cast votes of everyone that voted by mail in four states. 126. I mean, this is, you know, this is tin pot dictator kind of stuff, um, you know, had, had it gone through. Uh, and, you know, if you look at that, pretty much all of the Republican leaders, with a few exceptions, you know, they're either tacitly going along with this or they're silent. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think that is, is something that is alarming. And, 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 and I think that the extent that we, that there's this, I, I think, desire to minimize this and say this is, this is just Donald Trump's, um, you know, behavior and narcissism. It's just one guy. Uh, it's not that when an entire political party's going along with it. Right. There's clearly still a, a fear of, of Trump with a lot of Republicans, and it shows the extent to which yeah. uh, Trump still has control of the party. Maybe a lot of them don't really believe all of this. They don't really buy into it. They're just trying to kind of keep Trump happy, right? That that indulge him a little bit just so he doesn't do whatever. I, I don't know what specifically they're, they're fearful of. But is, is that where it comes from, do you think? Uh, I think some of it is top down, but a lot of it is bottom up, uh, frankly, Rob. I mean, this is, uh, this is what the voters of the Republican Party want right now. Uh, I think that there are, you know, if you broke it down, about a quarter of the party is fully Trump dead-enders and are bought into the fact that they think that this imaginary fraud happened and the election was stolen from them. And then there's another 25% that, that maybe don't buy the full story, but, but think that there's enough fraud and enough things to be worried about, um, you know, that they want the, their elected officials to stand by Trump. And then there's another 25% that don't really believe it, but just want to make the liberals mad. Uh, and then there's about 25 percent living in reality. Uh, and so when you've got 75 percent of the party, give or take, wanting you to um, do whatever you can to you know, try to keep Trump in power, um, then that's what you're going to do. And, and so I think that's why you see a lot of the you know, more considered politicians, the Marco Rubios of the world, you know, try to play these rhetorical games where they don't actually say that the fraud happened. But. You know, they don't want to, you know, take away the show from anybody. So, you know, they they attack the Democrats and, you know, they say, well, we, he has every right to challenge the Electoral College, even though we've never, you know, th this has never been a day of any import. You know, you've never had an American political strategist on a Canadian show to discuss the Electoral <laughs> right, exactly. College meeting today. I, you know, it was just a perfunctory thing. So. So, you know, I, I think that's why you see the Republicans playing this two-step right now, because it's what their voters want. 
You know, but it, yeah, it's a dangerous game, I think, though, for Republicans, because there, there are many that don't really have the party's interests at heart. And that that seemingly includes the president, who's issued some pretty overt threats aimed at Georgia's governor and Arizona's governor, even threatening to, you know, bring the House of Cards down on this this uh, Senate race or to you know, demolish the Republicans' chances in, in these two races in Georgia. There were these protesters in Washington over the weekend. You know, there were ostensibly Trump supporters, but chanting, destroy the GOP. What's going to happen to the Republican Party after all this? Yeah, I, I think the um, unfortunate part for those of us that wish uh, that the Republican leaders had some comeuppance for going along with this uh, is that the way that the American system is structured um, you know, a lot of them are pretty well protected, um, you know, by our, by just how polarized the nation is. Um, you know, a, a lot of the red states throughout this country are going to support a Republican no matter what. You know, and even if you look at a state like Kansas, you know, has one big city, Kansas City, you know, that went more for Joe Biden than it's gone for any, you know, Democrat in a long time. But, but Trump still won Kansas by double digits. You know, it was just 10 instead of 15, right? And so I, I think even if you look at these Georgia seats, there's a lot of um, sherm and drug around, you know, uh, all of these bogus claims. But, but if anything, it might just make people more aware of the fact that there's this runoff election coming up, right? I mean, runoff elections, usually the biggest challenge is getting people to vote in them because it's not, nor, it's not your usual um, time to vote, like, like in every four years in November. And so... I think that the Republican Party, um, you know, is going to have some speed bumps and they're going to have to deal with this, you know, Donald Trump out of power, unlike any former president in history, you know, live tweeting their actions and going on TV and attacking them. And all of that was going to create discomfort. But I think as far as political viability is concerned, many of these guys are pretty well insulated. Yeah, maybe there there are a lot of uh, Republicans who are, you know, just sort of hoping that, okay, you know, let's just keep Trump happy for now. After January, he's gone and we don't have to worry about him. But the more that they sort of, you know, bow to him and, and let him dictate, you know, the direction of the party and let him dictate the conversation, if he remains a force, if he remains kind of the kingmaker for the midterm elections, just the specter of him as a 2024 candidate, you know, chasing away other more sane Republicans who, who might seek to challenge Joe Biden in four years, does it remain Trump's party? Is that a real concern going forward? Oh, very much so. I mean, you know, look, I, I think at the end of the day, he's going to have obviously full name ID throughout the party. I mean, it's hard to to become a, the the you know, party standard bearer. If you're somebody in the Senate like Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley or, you know, the type of person who would want to be the next leader of the party, um, you know, how, how do you break through, right? How, um, how do you get the familiarity that you're need, that, that is needed when, you know, you know that at least half of the party base is still loyal to Donald Trump? So, you know, you can't attack him. You can't go after him. You can't criticize him. Uh, and so you're sort of hiding in his shadow and looking for opportunities to get attention. So uh, I think that Donald Trump uh, will hang over the entire the party all the way up until, you know, where he decide not to run again in 2024. Then then, you know, maybe that would begin to dissipate um, or, you know, should he end up getting indicted by, um, you know, the SDNY in New York or something of that nature. But um, outside those exceptions, I think this is still very much Donald Trump's party through 2024. 
What about some of the bigger concerns, you know, those that, that really truly have bought into all of this and, and whether there's a potential for even violence in, in the months ahead or even look into the next presidential election that, you know, American democracy has been undermined by all of this, that it, it becomes easier for whichever side loses, uh, you know, to, to reject the validity of the vote. And, and you know, that what we saw this time around could be even worse next time around. Is, is some of that overblown or what do you make of that? Well, look, I, I think that there is a, it is smart and correct to be concerned about very bad, low probability um, events, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that the idea that an election could be stolen, or that there would be violence in the streets over the election because people didn't believe in the outcome, uh, that was something that, that would have seemed preposterous. Um, 10 years ago to, to be to discuss and to be worried about in this country. And, and it's not so now. So I, I don't think that uh, I wouldn't say I'm predicting that it's going to happen. But but I, I think that absolutely this is going to be concerned about and, and that, that our country is going to need to look at, at safeguards to put into place in the future. I mean, look, had this election been closer you know, who knows exactly how the, all these challenges would have sh- shaken out. I mean, Donald Trump didn't end up, you know, as much as people want to act like this was a close election, it wasn't a particularly close election. It was just about as close as the 2012 election where Obama beat Romney and the 04 election where Bush beat Kerry was even closer than this. So neither of those are considered particularly close elections. So, you know, if, if this if this election had looked more like 2000, or more like, looked more like last time, um, boy, I think that there, there would have been real concern, uh, both for, you know, violence, um, as well as, you know, a rogue judge or one rogue state legislature. I mean, I think right now the problem is this, or not the problem, the thing we have going for us is their strength in numbers. You know, it's like even if the Pennsylvania yeah. legislature flipped over, they'd still need three others, you know, so it doesn't, it's not really that important because it was, because the election was so clear. I know President-elect Biden is going to be speaking later on today. He's, he's taken the approach of just trying to rise above all of this, right? He hasn't been dragged down to the muck, and he's, he's sort of let this, this whole thing play out. Do you think he's, he's approached this you know, wisely? What, what do you make of how he's handled the last few weeks here? I think that Biden, for his interest, has approached it wisely. Um, I would like to see Democratic leaders on the Hill and the DNC be much more aggressive in trying to hold the Republicans to account on this. Uh, I don't understand their their strategic approach here. Um, but, uh, but as far as Biden is concerned, look, he, he's going to have to work with the Republicans. He wants to get anything done. Yeah. That's just reality. He ran, a, he ran on the platform of uniting the country. The Republicans are still going to have control of the Senate, almost certainly. Uh, if they win, even if they win both Georgia seats, then it'll be tied. So, you know, I think that Joe Biden, if he wants to have any chance at at getting some things accomplished, he needs to present that he wants to work with Republicans and put the onus on them to not work with him, which I think is the likely outcome. But um, but but it's worth a try. And so I I think that he has the benefit of being able to do this because the victory was so clear and because he needs uh, he's going to need some Republican support. Right, much more at thebulwark.com. Tim, appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Hey, anytime. Take All care. right, take care. That is Tim Miller, writer-at-large for The Bulwark, a political director with the Republican voters uh, against Trump. So his thoughts on, yeah, what otherwise is kind of an uneventful day is taking on some additional significance, but just yet another opportunity to point out that this is over, <laughs> that Trump lost and, and Joe Biden won. Thank <laughs> you. 
Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Brickenridge with you here on this Monday afternoon. So uh, there's there's enough good news on the vaccine front that it, it should probably make, I, I think, or I hope for a mostly normal summer games this year in Tokyo. Remember, the Olympics were supposed to have been last year, uh, but it might not be fully normal. Uh, so it's possible that next year's Winter Olympics might be the, the real fully normal, back to normal kind of Olympic Games. And so in that sense, it might be a, a bit of a celebration as we are now finally past all of this. I think certainly China wants to use the Winter Olympics next year, which are going to be in Beijing, as a platform for not just a return to normalcy, but, but their own narrative about how they uh, have, in their view, led the charge back to normalcy in terms of how they have conquered uh, this, this virus. And certainly much like we saw in, in 2008, just as a platform for China as a global player. So it, it's a way of, I, I think, shining a, a light on their own ambitions and, and certainly their own narrative around COVID. But it doesn't make all of the issues surrounding China go away. Uh, their human rights record, obviously, what we've been seeing recently in Hong Kong in particular, ongoing concern about the, uh, the, the, uh, the Uyghur minority in China. And certainly from Canada's perspective, We've got some very serious uh, and pressing concerns with China, not the least of which is the continued detention of the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. As a result of what happened to them, of course, uh, there is, there remains a travel advisory in place. Uh, the Canadians should be exercising a high degree of caution in China due to the risk of arbitrary enforcement of local laws. I mean, this is hostage diplomacy that the Chinese government is playing here. Let's not kid ourselves. And so, yes, I would be very concerned about any Canadian uh, going to China right now. Now, if we're going to be a part of the 2022 Winter Olympics, and if those are still going to be held in Beijing, we're going to be sending a lot of Canadians to China. And so how much concern is there about their safety? And the bigger question, should we go? Should China be hosting the Winter Olympics next year? It's an interesting piece in the Ottawa Citizen today uh, about this very question and why Beijing is a risky place to be sending our athletes and why perhaps we need to move the Winter Olympics to somewhere else. Uh, joining us uh, to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Ivy Lee, who is with the uh, group Canadian Friends of Hong Kong. Ivy, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's talk about the, the Olympics next year and, and your view on how China wants to use these these Olympics, how they see some propaganda value in once again playing host to the Winter Olympics. What are your concerns about the lead up uh, to these games and how China intends on using this? Well, there are two concerns that uh, Canadians really need to think about. One is the safety issues of all the Canadians, including the best of our ethnics, that we will be sending them to Beijing. Uh, how to keep them safe? Would they be arbitrarily arrested? Uh, would they be able to come back safely? And do they have to exercise self-censorship before they go? Because would they, if they say something critical or post something critical uh, about the Chinese government, or if they post anything supportive of the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, and, uh, uh, and the Hong Kong protesters or Taiwan, would they be denied visa to enter China to go to their Olympics? Or even worse, 
would they be actually uh, arrested under Article 38 of the recently introduced uh, national sec- security law in Hong Kong? Because in that Article 38 of the uh, NSL, it actually says that anybody, even though if you are not Chinese citizens or you are not Hong Kong permanent residents, if you commit anything that which is forbidden under the national security law, such as criticizing the regime or supportive of the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong, then regardless of your nationalities and regardless of where you commit a so-called that crime, even if you say in Canada, you are subject to the punishment of Article 38. So in, essentially, it means that Beijing has up, uh, unilaterally claimed jurisdiction over the entire population of the globe, including Canadians. Now, in that sense, are we going to expect our ethnics to practice self-censorship before the, the, the Beijing uh, Olympics, that they would not say anything that they wanted to say on their social media? Uh, or are we going to expect our government to not do anything that would displease the, uh, uh, the Chinese Communist Party until the Olympics over and all our ethnics is safely back home. So this is a serious self-censorship and violation of freedom of speech and freedom of expression for Canadians. Yeah. And if they don't, if they're not careful about it, they will either be denied access or may even be arrested under Article 38 in Beijing and then detained, punished, imprisonment, like our Michaels. And NSL, the National Security Law, carries a life, can be up to life sentence in imprisonment. So the other uh, concern we must think about is the, we have, if the uh, Olympics is in Beijing, we are essentially forcing our ethnics to become the propaganda tool of Beijing. Um, the first part, the first one is that we, our ethnic will be helping them to garner the moral uh, victory of having Beijing be the first cities in the world to host both the winter and the summer Olympics. The second thing is our ethnics will become their propaganda tools to whitewashing their human rights violations because Olympism, according to Olympics own charter, is that they are fostering human dignity. They are fostering friendship and uh, ethical principles, which everything Beijing is not. But by having our ethnics going there and having the Olympics being hosted there, we are affirming, sending out a signal that Beijing is good. Beijing represents Olympism. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that it's really outrageous that we are forcing our ethnics, whether they agree or not, A, to practice self-censorship, B, to actually become the propaganda tools. Certainly, the eyes of the world are going to be on China for the Olympic Games. And and I think there's a sense maybe that because of that, China would be on its best behavior, that it wouldn't dare 
uh, arresting uh, an athlete from another country. But that, that's putting a lot of trust in the Chinese government when maybe that's not warranted. What, what would you say to those to people who would argue that, though? Well, I think that we can look at what happened for the Summer Olympics. Beijing hosted the Summer Olympics not that long ago. See what they have done after that? They have continued to commit uh, the concentration camp in, uh, in Xinjiang, which basically the uh, Canadian Special Committee on China uh, uh, called it a genocide. So they continue to commit genocide, and they continue to suppress the Tibetans. They continue to arrest uh, rice lawyers. They continue to suppress all the uh, pro-democracy activities, and then they now they are basically choking Hong Kong to death. And every day Hong Kong's pro-democracy activists are being arrested right now, uh, including media uh, uh, publisher Jimmy Lai, just a few days ago, being chained up, handcuffed, and chained up around the waist, led away to the, poli- to, uh, to the police stations, and now is put in jail. So is, has the Summer Olympics changed anything, improved uh, Beijing's behavior? It's not. It's actually getting worse. And also in terms of Beijing's promises to the world, participating in international organizations, which everything he has done is violating promises. Um, give you a few examples in, in here. The uh, United Kingdom just recently declared China in, in clear breach of the Sino-British Joint Declaration and has broken its promises and undermined Hong Kong's high degree of autonomy. Then another thing is China's autonomy regions are not autonomous as promised. Tibetans, Uyghurs, these are supposed to be autonomy regions in China, including Hong Kong, but they are brutally suppressed. And then another example is Beijing signed the international confidence of civil and political rights and repeatedly promised to ratify it, but haven't. Instead, it cracks down on rights lawyers and commits genocide. So another example is China is a party of hate, but it angrily rejected the permanent court of arbitration's ruling on the South China Sea when it ruled in Philippines' favor. So basically, the Summer Olympics has not changed any behavior of the Chinese Communist Party. And then also, China's repeatedly broken its promises and agreements, regardless whether it is legally binding or not. So this is a country. How can we actually argue that the Olympics will change its behavior when reality tells us it hasn't? Yeah, exactly. So in terms of how to respond, I mean, boycotting the Olympics uh, would, would be an option for Canada, and maybe that should be on the table. But uh, the piece you wrote today talks about maybe having countries band together and push for the Olympics to be moved. Do, do you think that's possible? Oh, definitely, definitely. First of all, uh, our, our, our ethnic 
are Olympians. They do not have to stand up for human rights and Olympism. Uh, and, and dash their Olympic dreams means that they don't have to because of standing up for human rights and Olympism ended up dashing the Olympic dreams. Only if Beijing loses the games would the burden primarily fall on the perpetrators of the worst ongoing human rights violations. So we needed to take the game away from China. And then the, the uh, very viable solution is to move the games to a free country as well as a, country, a city that have already hosted the Winter Games before. Many of those cities still have the facilities, besides the experience, because to host an Olympics is actually require lots of experience, lots of preparations, besides the infrastructure and all this. So those cities already have the experience, and many of them still have up-to-date facilities, as well as the infrastructure, such as in, say, for example, uh, when Vancouver and Whistler hosted the Winter Olympics, they have to build the Canada Line uh, rail line to get people from the airport to the uh, to Whistler easily by having a a fast high speed train, and then they can hop onto a conducting uh, transportation uh, way of do, of going to different places. So those infrastructures already existing. So it means for a city to host that again, the time that it would take and the investment that I have to put in there would be a lot less. That also translates into the money, the return that they might get back from advertising, from tourism and everything would be higher. So, um, and at the same time, if the IOC saying, the International Olympic Com- uh, Committee, if they're saying, oh, we cannot move it because the time, we only have about 15 months left. But wait, see what happened in the 2020 uh, Summer Olympics in Tokyo because yeah. of COVID-19. So they postponed it for a year, at least for a year. So we can do the same thing. If the new host city is saying that, we need a little bit more time. Then we postponed it to 2023. We have precedents in here. We'll leave it there. Ivy, some important points. Uh, we appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks so much for this. Thank you. All right, that's uh, Ivy Lee with the group uh, Kennedy and Friends of Hong Kong. And uh, their call to, to see the Winter Olympics moved. I think from an athlete's point of view, that would be preferable than a boycott uh, because then Canadian athletes are missing out on the opportunity to pursue Olympic glory. Uh, and if the Olympics are moved somewhere else, then that, that's not a, an issue. So then China is the one who's punished as opposed to, to the athletes being punished. But how likely is that? You know, even if you could get the U.S., other Western countries on board, uh, China's certainly got its allies. And obviously, look, the IOC knew what it was, was getting in bed with when it gave uh, China the, the Olympics. Uh, So I don't know. I don't know that 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 would be likely. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.